Hey, Kara. Hey, Chris. How are you? I am excellent. Slash, it's Friday and I'm ready for the day to be over already. Right. I'm actually, uh, I'm actually good. coming to you guys from Texas for oh, this podcast. So you are in my time zone. I am in your time zone for the first time. We didn't have to coordinate that one hour difference that always messes us up. It's always complicated. I know it's, <laughs> it's bad. We have PhDs, but can't figure out how to Google what time is it now in where I live. Or It's much where... too difficult. Right on. So we have a guest today who gave a talk here at Alabama last night for the Alabama Lectures on Life's Evolution, waiting right outside my door. And how about I go get him and bring him in so we can talk yeah, to him? Yeah, bring him on in. All right. Hang on just a sec. Hello. I was beginning to wonder if you ran away from us. No. <laughs> so, Muhammad Noor, Kara Akabak. Hi, Kara. Nice to meet you, Muhammad. Nice to meet you as well. He was here with Jeff Lozier, who is an evolutionary biologist here at the University of Alabama. He studies bees mm-hmm. and population genetics, but he went out there and he's like, I study mussels now. And I was like... In addition to the bees. Right. And I was thinking <laughs> the kind of mussels that you study right she's uh she studies human energetics and is a power lifter oh wow so i was like i was like whoa (laughs) and then i realized he was talking about the the water little black born kind so oh with the s's and no c in there that kind of right took me a second because jeff is not a super muscly dude he's not like a (laughs) i like to work out dude he's a kind of proudly the opposite although he, he clamors up mountains in search of bees so i'm probably doing him a disservice but but, you know, I'm not a runner, and I've studied runners. Fair enough. I'm the exact opposite of a runner. So that's the beauty <laughs> of academia. We can kind of do what we want within a certain realm. <laughs> that's true. That's true. We can, we can. Well, I'm actually in Starfleet. No, I'm just kidding. Right on. I, well, you've <laughs> got the, the photo is amazing. I'm you're, sending you're, my I'm, application in right now. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. You know, we usually just kind of start off with people who know who we are, but I wanted to give a little bit of background for our guest today because... I looked at the website, but it'd still be nice to hear. Wonderful, yeah, wonderful. So Karen and I are both members of the Human Biology Association. We started this podcast because we really just wanted to talk to people whose research is interesting. And the Human Biology Association has charitably extended a stipend for our producer, a graduate student, to edit. So we we get the best of both worlds. We get to talk to lots of fascinating experts inside and outside of human biology. And both of us are very, very outward facing in our science education, Mm -hmm. broadly trained. Let's get people involved in evolutionary studies and scientific thinking. So Kara mm-hmm. does uh, Science on Tap. Nice. Uh, oh, yeah, I know that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, Awesome. And has been the Alan Alda thing that you did. What was that I've called? I've done some training with the Alan Alda Center for Communicating Science. Uh, and yeah, public outreach in the capital region of New York. We started a nonprofit to actually improve outreach and education in the in the regions yeah so i'm at albany the oh so i was albany. just there i was just in albany um a month ago so i was you remember the northeast trek con just happened there yes 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 we actually got asked to do a table there for our nonprofit, uh, but we couldn't find somebody to be there at the time uh, uh, i gave, I gave uh, actually another version of the same talk there just uh, just a month ago oh man you missed it kara <laughs> i can't believe it i can't believe i missed it that's terrible i may have actually been out of town on that one but yeah our group was definitely invited out and we have some of those uh trek con people come to our events ah nice yeah. nice well i haven't asked him yet but hopefully 
hopefully they recorded his talk last night and if he's willing we will oh, yeah. they we, did record it and you're absolutely and i also wanted so that's kara and i heard you reference uh being trained by jerry coin as i was live tweeting your talk last night yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> um leslie Rissler was retweeting and oh, leslie nice. and i started the evolutionary studies program here wow so she was the the person who started the alabama lectures in life's evolution oh, series that you're a part of oh. she and i started the evolutionary studies program she went on to NSF. Yep. I have since handed off the evolutionary studies minor to uh, Becky Manzoni, who you met last yep. night as well at the end. Yep. And that is how we all come to be where we are and who we are. Wow, that's so. really cool. Origin story right there. Or, that's, that's my origin story. Yeah, what's your best? So, you who else in your ears? Yeah. yeah. What's your oh, best? my origin story. Oh, yeah. I, what part of my origin story? Do we want the podcast origin story or research origin story? Both. Both. So research I like, came. I like that our guest is interviewing us. <laughs> I know. This is going to last like an hour and a half. Uh, I'm supposed to be giving a talk at noon today. So we'll see how that goes. Okay. <laughs> I went to grad school actually wanting to do orangutan biomechanics. Oh, okay. Which I had completely... My friend Libby Cogill is also in the room, and she and I went to grad school together. <laughs> and she just looked at me like, what? Because it's so different from what I do now. And amazingly, I had forgotten I wanted to do orangutan biomechanics until my dissertation defense after party, when my advisor, Herman, like decided to do a trek through my career. And I wanted to do what? <laughs> no sense. Uh, anyway, I ended up moving from biomechanics into more physiology and looking at human energy expenditure uh, in extreme conditions. So extreme climatic conditions, hot, cold, or extreme physical activity. So the running thing that I alluded to earlier, I followed runners who ran a marathon a day every single day for 140 days as they ran across the continental United States. Oh my gosh, I can't Like remember. crazy stuff, crazy stuff. Uh, and right now I'm working at a field site in Finland with the reindeer herders at the Arctic Circle. So looking at their energy expenditure, brown adipose tissue, the differences between seasons, that kind of fun thing. Yeah, so from orangutan biomechanics to reindeer herders. How did that transition to the podcast? It's through the Human Biology Association. Chris and a few other of our colleagues started kind of an informal writing group through the okay. Human Biology Association. And like a year or two after they formed it, I was basically begging for help and mentorship with writing. And I contacted this writing group, like, please, please take pity on me and let yeah. me be your writing group. And that writing group lasted, what, maybe another year? Okay. But then like the friendships and, yeah. you know, collaboration and all that kind of continued on. It just didn't stay as like this formal weekly writing group meeting. We all still help one another, but it doesn't have the structure that it used to. Uh, and then basically, I don't know, maybe even like a year and a half ago now at this point, Chris emailed me and he's like, hey, I want to do a podcast. Do you want to co-host it with me? And I'm just like, sure, because I don't know how to say no <laughs> in academia. <laughs> so let's just do it. And it's been so much fun learning That's about awesome. other people's work and the way the different things that we do that seem so different actually are really highly relatable. So yeah. there's my very long origin story. that has. Oh, that's great. And yeah, I can see why you would do it because you're extremely eloquent in describing what you were doing too. That I can see why I can see how you then got doing podcasting and stuff. That's great. At the recent AAA, our American Anthropological Association conference, I went to a session on podcasters and most of them were talking about the transition of giving their podcast up for the next cohort. And I was looking around going, 
why in the hell do you want to give it up? Like, I love this. And it's, you know, I don't wouldn't, wouldn't want to say it's mine or ours, but <laughs> get out of here. <laughs> anyway, so now I want to hear your origin story because I grew up watching Star Trek from a very early age. That was what was on in my house. Yeah. So when I saw this, I got really excited. And so how did you go from evolutionary biology genetics to be like, right, I'm making the really awesome public outreach link to Star Trek. To <laughs> That's a great question. So I, like you, I was always a big Star Trek fan. And I remember I used to watch the original series when I was a kid. Next Generation came on. I think it started when I was in senior year of high school and continued into college. I watched it and the people in, in, that, I started to say my dorm, it wasn't exactly a dorm, but the equivalent of a dorm, <laughs> the, the people I used to hang out with in college, we'd always, we'd always over dinner sit there and watch Next Generation episodes together. Even, in fact, my undergraduate research advisor, Bruce Grant at the College of William & Mary, was also a big Star Trek fan. So we'd often talk about it. We still exchange emails about it all the time. I got an email from him last night about things like that. There were sort of two parts to the life for a long time. There's the research part and there's the Trek part and the two didn't actually marry until much more recently. I guess there were a couple of things that happened at once. Well, about 10 years ago, I started teaching the introductory level class on genetics and evolution. And very shortly after I did that, I, I introduced it as an online course in Coursera. So you can actually look at it right now. It's just called Introduction to Genetics and Evolution. And, you know, it's, it's basic transmission genetics, a lot of evolutionary concepts, things like that. Shortly after I did that, I went to my first convention. My daughter encouraged me to go to this thing like, oh, this will be really fun. Let's go to Dragon Con in Atlanta. And look, there's gonna be some Star Trek actors. And there's a lot of other fandoms going on there. Going there, I saw that there was a science track. I didn't know this was a thing. <laughs> While I was there too, one of my colleagues from Duke University, his name's uh, Professor Eric Spana. He's a molecular biologist. He actually gave a talk there on the genetics of wizarding and Harry Potter. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it was extremely well done and very well attended. So while I was there, I talked with the person who runs the Trek track, who's Garrett Wong. He's the actor who plays Harry Kim in Star Trek Voyager. I asked him if, I, if it would be okay if I did something on evolution in Star Trek at Dragon Con the following year. He said, yes, we're always looking for more content. We would love to have you do this. I did a test version of it. I just put it on YouTube and I got a lot of feedback. This is the great thing about the Trek community is that they have a lot of opinions. <laughs> they have a lot of there will be a follow-up question to that later on. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. So that, that got me a lot of feedback ahead of time. So then I was able to give the talk. And luckily, because of that feedback, I was able to fix a lot of things that were not precisely correct on the Trek side. <laughs> Soon after that, I actually told this story at the talk last night. Mm -hmm. I got a contact from Princeton University Press saying, we'd like you to do a public outreach talk and a book associated with it. Would you be willing to do this? And I said, well, I usually give two public outreach talks. One's on evidence for evolution. And my former PhD advisor wrote the book, Why Evolution is True. I can't improve upon that. It's a great book. And she said, what about your other one? I said, well, it's on speciation. And again, he wrote a book called Speciation. <laughs> so I don't feel like I can, I mean, it's not a general public one, but I don't feel like I can improve upon it. And she said, well, do you give any other public talks? I said, well, there is something. So I referred her to that draft talk I was just telling you about that was on YouTube. She watched that and said, wow, I like this. Let's do that. <laughs> so we then brainstormed some of the specifics. And I said, look, I'm just going to have it mirror what's going on in my class, but all just using examples from Star Trek. So it's, it's, you know, it's much more comprehensive than the talk I gave last night, but it's just essentially covering all those same concepts, but using examples like, well, in this episode, we saw this, the term dominant came up. Did they use it correctly? What does that mean? You know, break it down. And the goal from the book is not to assess Star Trek. 
The goal from the book is to teach these concepts. We started with that premise, and given there's 700 episodes of Star Trek and 13 movies, pretty much anything I was looking for, I could find something. Sometimes I had to twist it a little bit. It wouldn't be something they actually said, but okay, in this place, there is a very small number of individuals. That is a founder effect. Let's talk about that. So I twisted things to make it fit a little bit, just given the volume of content. At the end, it was funny. I had a lot of content left of things that came up in Star Trek, but it didn't fit the narrative of the class. Mm. So what I did is I made an appendix to the book that's just like little nuggets. I call them mining gems and coal. So gems are good examples and coal are very bad examples. <laughs> so uh, here's where my follow-up question will come in. Because Please. you just said like this is not an assessment of Star Trek. It's yes. an assessment of, you know, the evolutionary theory and things that might exactly. come up in Star Trek. But <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> it's a book that talks about Star Trek. I mean, what level of fear did you have going in writing it about fan backlash on this? Very high. So there's you know, two, th two things I did in this context. Number one is I made sure that I, I bent over backwards to be nice to Star Trek. Like if I could give any credit whatsoever, I would give that credit in there. If I just came back and said, well, that's stupid, that's stupid. You know, that, that's not very helpful. And honestly, I mean, they're not scientists. These are people mm -hmm. who are just trying, trying to write an engaging entertainment product. It's fair if it's not perfect. So that's as I try to give them as much credit as possible. Did you send the manuscript out to like any super fan before it actually got published? I did. I did the the president of the local Star Trek fan club, John Trone. He's the he's captain of the USS Kitty Hawk. That's what it's called. I had him look it over. <laughs> he actually gave me a, a fair bit of feedback, which was useful. And I had some other people who looked it, looked it over too. The other thing I did is I actually went and either rewatched or looked over the scripts for all 700 episodes. Mm. That took about a year. <laughs> because I really wanted to make sure I didn't say like, well, this is the only place this came up. And in fact, it came up someplace else. And I couldn't, I couldn't just do, people said, why don't you just do a word search? The problem is in Star Trek, they don't necessarily use the technical term. So I'll give you one example. They, they refer to this thing called replicative fading in the next generation. Mm -hmm. And that's the idea that if you have a clone off a clone off a clone, you know, it ends up now, that is not the technical term for that <laughs> whatsoever. So if I didn't sit there and go through the episode, I wouldn't have, you know, if I'd done just a word search, I wouldn't have caught that concept. It was a very long, comprehensive process. Impressively, though, the, the publisher, when they set this out for peer review, they got people who clearly knew both the evolution and the Star Trek because both reviewers commented like, well, what about episode X and X? Oh, and also remember Muller's Ratchet has this aspect to it too. Mm. You know? So they clearly knew both sides. So kudos to the publisher for finding really good reviewers for it. So I, uh, just a, a follow-up question on that. I, I recognize that you're, it's good not to try to inflame the, the <laughs> passions of the Star Trek community or, or give too much of a harsh critique. Cause yeah, it's some of it's, pretty dated at this yeah, point that's right, that's right um it's also fair to say that it's for popular consumption but i had to say it was cringeworthy the slide you showed of spock saying that uh such and such species are more highly evolved and yeah, we are yeah. more highly evolved than amoebas that's some of the basic stuff yeah. we're trying to yeah. dissuade the public Absolutely. of thinking what do you think about the reinforcing of negative or just wrong messaging that that may occur in some of that I mean, that certainly does happen. And so they did have, well, I guess that, that particular, I don't know what the science advising was for the original series, but for the later series, for at least part of Next Generation Deep Space Nine Voyager, they had Andre Bormanis, who's a physicist, who, who was mm. a science advisor for it. So I've spoken with him. He was actually at the Northeast TrekCon in Albany. <laughs> but, I really missed out. I know. That's okay. <laughs> I, really missed but I discussed it with him a little bit, and he said that he would often seek out other people for things. So you know, there were times when they'd reach out to people, but as has come up repeatedly, 
always story trumps science. Mm -hmm. And they, they made that very clear that if, if, you know, we need this to happen, you know, we're going to make this happen with your science or without yeah. science. So that's, that's a challenge. Now, you mentioned the thing about how some aspects of it are dated. It was interesting. I have a graph in, in the third chapter of my book on the use of like the words DNA, genetic, genome, things like that over the course of the, the different series. If you look at the 60s series, like something like maybe one or two episodes mention those words, like the word nucleotide comes up once, DNA comes up once, mm. things like that. Genome, of course, doesn't come up at all. Mm. There's, there's, there's a perfect linear trend as you look at the later series, though, <laughs> where you see Next Generation has a fair bit more. Deep Space Nine has about the same as Next Generation. Voyager, there's another big step up. Enterprise, another big step up. And, and in Discovery, the most recent series, they talk about horizontal gene transfer mm. and things like that. <laughs> so I guess that brings in another question that they are including more science as you go yes. through time but then do you also see like are they misconstruing it more through time as well do you see more issues with the science as they start using more of the technical terms so with genetics there's a, there's pretty consistent improvement right mm. so that that's they seem to be pretty good at i don't think they tend to seek consulting very much for evolution <laughs> i think they're, they're they're winging that one a little bit more <laughs> Now, they, there was a big error in the most recent series, and the one which is airing right now, Star Trek Discovery, mm -hmm. where um, they were talking about um, a study. Well, they didn't specifically reference the study, but they referenced the results of the study that uh, was published in 2015 about the tardigrade having very high rates of horizontal gene transfer into it from other species. This was published in 2015, but the following year, several people pointed out this was just... And that was published in 2016. In 2018, this year then, they had, they had something in the show talking about those high rates of gene or horizontal gene transfer into the tardigrade. I think what happened is they grabbed the press release from the mm -hmm. old ones. And as, as is often what, ha what happens with science, you know, the, the positive result gets a lot of press when somebody later says, Oh, actually it's not true. It's not so press worthy. Yeah. I mean, it's impressive to me that they actually picked something from a real scientific study, even though they, they picked wrong in that particular case, the fact that they even picked that up and incorporate it in there, I, say, I take as impressive. So just to sidetrack slightly and, and we'll come back to more Star Trek because <laughs> obviously for public communication, this is going to be compelling to everyone, but Getting back to your origin story, I'd like to hear more about the research you do ah, sure. on a daily basis and how you got there. Sure, sure. So I'm, I'm an evolutionary geneticist, not surprisingly, given the topic. <laughs> I'm very interested in the genetic changes it takes to make new species, and that's been a research topic since I was in graduate school, and also the evolutionary forces that drive new species to form. My dissertation work, a big part of it was looking at the role of natural selection in specifically driving the evolution of mate preference. So, you know, most species tend to prefer to mate with their own species and will prefer not to mate with the other species. So I, I did a specific test using Drosophila fruit flies to see if natural selection had driven that in a particular case where you looked at some species which had co-occurred with the other species and therefore there would be a selection pressure versus uh, populations of the same species which didn't co-occur with the other species and therefore there wouldn't be that pressure. And what you found is the ones that did co-occur exhibited much higher discrimination just as you'd predict from a sort of natural selection argument. So that was, that was a, that's been a big part of my research. And, and I'm continuing to do things that basically follow up from that, getting a lot more of the genetics and, you know, what's the role of, you know, structural differences among chromosomes in allowing species to persist, things like that. But that's been our biggest focus. So what led you to that? What's your background? So I was in college. I knew I liked biology, but I was not particularly captivated by the introductory courses, mostly because most introductory biology courses suck, <laughs> to be blunt. <laughs> but um, I put off taking genetics until junior year, mostly because people had told me, oh, genetics is really hard. Mm -hmm. I finally took it junior year, and I, I really liked it. I liked the logic to it. I liked the mathematical aspects to it. So I asked my 
undergraduate, not my research advisor, I, didn't, I wasn't doing research yet at this point. I asked my undergraduate advisor who you just register for classes with whether I should take the next class in that sequence, which is called evolutionary genetics. And he looked at that and said, mm, I know it's a pretty tough class. Maybe you should take something more consistent with your ability. <laughs> It's <laughs> not been that good because I hadn't been that interested. I, yeah. I've been just sort of flailing about. You know, for genetics, I got an A, but before that, my, my average was not that great. I, I fortunately did not listen to him. I signed up for the evolutionary genetics class. Absolutely loved it. Absolutely loved it. I used to sit in the front row and I was just absolutely captivated by the, the mathematics uh, explaining natural populations and inheritance in them. I was like, this is amazing. Mm -hmm. And I asked that person that if I could do research with him, and he's the one who became my research advisor. And he's the one who I mentioned was a Star Trek fan as well. Mm -hmm. So that very much got me started. Interestingly, that same undergraduate advisor who I then worked with, the good one in this mm -hmm. case. I'm mentioning names. Not mentioning, well, actually, I mentioned the good one. It was right, Bruce exactly, Grant. He's exactly. awesome. <laughs> He was also the undergraduate advisor for Jerry Coyne okay. 20 some years earlier. That's so crazy. I know, right? So he was like, why don't you go work with my former student, Jerry? You know, you might really like that. And uh -huh. sure enough, he but was that's, right. that's also fascinating to me because when I think back to my undergraduate days, I majored in cellular and molecular biology. Uh -huh. And I honestly think that there was only one genetics class available to be taken. Uh, like there wasn't an additional step anyone could take if they wanted to pursue genetics as an interest. Uh, so that's also really great that you had that opportunity to have evolutionary Absolutely. genetics class. That's uncommon. So that brings me to, to one of the thoughts I, I had last night. You mentioned, and you mentioned for us as well, several public talks that you were giving when Princeton asked you about, about a book deal. Yeah. And I, I often think about this with the work that we do and why other researchers are doing public facing talks. And obviously if Jerry was your advisor, we had him for an allele lecture. He's a public speaker. Definitely. He does public talks. Definitely. So, you know, I, I wonder what type of need you saw or why, why you're out here doing this. Part of it, I just really enjoy it, honestly. You know, this, this, is, this is a topic I'm passionate about. And I want to share it because partly for the reason I just said in the sense that most introductory biology classes are pretty uninteresting. They're very much fact-based, memorize these little things and, and just throwing stuff at people. And I feel like there's a lot of people out there who could get engaged in science who don't just because they don't find a, they don't find a way that it fits with their thinking, with their interests. It just seems like, oh, biology is just a bunch of stuff you memorize. No, that's not biology at all. That's really what I'm out there trying to do. So I'm doing a class that's based on my book as well right now. My goal from that, mm -hmm. as well as the, these public sorts of talks, are just to engage people in, especially the parts of biology that I think they're least likely to fully engage in, which is things like evidence for evolution. And especially here in the South. I mean, not when I say here, I don't necessarily mean just here in Alabama, but also where we are in North Carolina. You know, evolution is sometimes a bad word. You know, when I get on a plane and somebody asks me what I do, I never start off by saying an evolutionary biologist. I always start <laughs> off by saying genetics. I just leave it at that and see where they go first. And then, and then if it looks warm, then I'll Say, okay evolution too but that's that's sad like why why should i be suspicious of this why does it have such a negative reaction to it? evolution is just an obvious organizing principle and there, the evidence for it is irrefutable so that's really what i want to try to get out there to people in a way that's non-threatening it's mm. not you know saying oh you can't believe what you want to believe oh, believe whatever the heck you want but not threatening and not defensive exactly it's, it's the defensive position we almost always take as the scientists that i think exactly. turns people off immediately exactly another question i had it sounds like it relates to the research that you do so last night you talked about three hypotheses yes. that star trek presents yes. and one of them i just thought was such if we think about it we could hopefully all and at least those of us who are thinking a lot about evolution and study it, figure it out. But it's a great, as you said, you're doing a class. It's a great question for students. Uh-huh. And so I'll, I'll just ask you to give you a chance to unpack it. What is the problem 
with in, the interbreeding we see between Earthlings and Vulcans and other uh, other <laughs> interplanetary species, races, whatever on Star Trek. I guess the problem depends on how we assume that we are related to these other species, if at all. If we're not at all related, then it's just completely absurd. There's, there's no reason to think that we would in any way be remotely, remotely compatible with any other species. If we are related, but you use the first hypothesis from the, from the series, this is from the Star Trek Next Generation, which is that basically all these different planets were seeded with, with life forms uh, four billion years ago. Okay, that literally means, this example I used in my lecture, that literally means you're more closely related to grass than you are to a Vulcan. There's no way we're going to reproduce with grass. <laughs> or anything even a lot, a lot more closely similar to us than grass. Why would this work for the Vulcan? So that's just absurd. Where it potentially does work is if these alien species are more closely related to us than we are to chimp. That would potentially work. So one of the hypotheses that came up in one of the other um, Star Trek episodes, this is from the original series, is that some alien species or alien groups, I guess they didn't say species, were actually taken from Earth and taken to other places. If that happened, say, a couple hundred thousand years ago, yeah, uh, that's feasible. I mean, we know that ancient hominids could interbreed. We know they did interbreed here on Earth. Yeah. <laughs> like, great. Yeah, there were several examples of alien... Oh, I hate to use the word racist species, whatever yeah. we're calling them, seeding the universe. That seemed to be a trope. And yeah. I wonder, since you gave us the vignette and then dissected them, and I have, I remembered a few of them, but I can't remember if they resolved them. Surely there were scientists thinking about these things on the Star Trek Enterprise. It's essentially a military regime, but there didn't seem <laughs> to be much in the way. There was like one scientist, one engineer, one doctor. So why do they keep returning to basically what your question is? Why are there humanoids all over the, uh, the universe? And they, were, they seem to be trying to address this themselves yeah. through the show. Well, I mean, the, uh, the spoiler answer, of course, as everybody knows, is, is because we use human actors. <laughs> That's the spoiler answer for it. <gasps> that was my answer. But... <laughs> Whenever I give the talk, somebody always brings that up to, well, isn't the real reason because it's cheaper to use human actors than to do CGI? Like, yes, okay, but the thought experiment on that is not very exciting. Right. <laughs> so we can just let that one go. It's interesting that Star Trek seems to think very deeply about a lot of the physics and they, they try to address a lot of issues with the physics so some examples you know the enterprise is going faster than the speed of light and suddenly stops right everything in that ship should be smeared against the <laughs> 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 right? but what they do is they refer to the quote inertial dampeners mm. right so this is something that, that somehow is, it's not explained how it works but it's something that makes this okay right similarly you know when you're using these transporters you know figure out exactly which molecule is where it would be absolutely impossible. Part of this is because of the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. So what do they have? Heisenberg compensators. <laughs> <laughs> so they recognize a lot of the problems and then they just, they just put something in there to kind of make it work. Talking with um, Andre Bormanis, the science advisor, he said one of the things that they often would do too is he, he would look for a term that's kind of similar to existing terms and just mm -hmm. tweak it and say, okay, this is now, this is now what we're trying to do to make this work. Again, He's a physicist. He's not a biologist. So I think often with the biology, there's a little bit more. We're just going to wing it. Do you think that we could take it in a socially positive way? I know Star Trek, especially the original series, is one of the first to have a very diverse cast. Yeah. Representing yeah. a diverse crew on yeah. this spaceship. And yeah. they've maintained that throughout. And I know the Absolutely. new series, though I haven't watched it, um, has Good been way. you know applauded for doing that. Yeah. And maybe we could take that a step further, again, with 
all the different aliens throughout yeah. the world being very similar to humans. And again, this, we are far more similar than we are different. Absolutely true. That, that really <laughs> absolutely. That's the case. I mean, there's definitely a lot of social messaging going on with what was going on with the aliens. There was a lot of, you know, countering racism. One of the, one of the first episodes of the original series was one where they saw the Romulans for the first time and, oh my gosh, they look just like the Vulcans. And, you know, and somebody made a snotty comment about Mr. Spock. And Kirk, you know, chewed him out. How dare you? I will have none of that, none of that racism in, in my bridge or something like that. So they, they were very big on that sort of social commentary aspect. We're almost out of time, but we have a couple sort of standard questions. Sure. One of them I'll tweak that just is spot on the topic here, which is what are some of your favorite science fiction books or besides Star Trek movies for their science depictions or even just for their entertainment value alone? Like, what are you reading right now? I actually don't do a lot of pleasure reading. Most of them are reading oh. I do tends to be for for work. So that, that I'd probably set aside. In terms of, of movies that I thought the science was really good on, I really, really liked The Martian. Mm. I, was, I yeah. thought that was very impressive. They tried. I mean, there were there were a couple of little tweaks here and there that, that could have been made, but overall, that was great. And it was just a great movie. I mean, Matt Damon. Can was, I tell a story about The Martian? Please. So I read the book before the movie ever came out. Yeah. And I think I flew through that book faster than any book I've ever read in my life. Wow. It was just you were glued to it. Yeah. And anytime I love a book, I always look up the the one star reviews on Amazon. And one of the rev- the reviews said, "This book was highly technical. I wouldn't recommend it for women." <laughs> Whoa! That's horrible! <laughs> what? Can you believe that? Yeah, that yeah. Which horrible. made me love the book all that much more. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> I think Muhammad's reaction of horror was better than my guffaw of laughter. I didn't mean that in uh, an agreement way. <laughs> of course. Of course. So I guess my fun question is, favorite Star Trek series, and there will be two parts of this. Okay. One that does the best with science, and then one which is your just favorite to enjoy. We're going to be riling up the fans on this one, I'm sure. I know. So I have, a, I have a website that I made. I have a friend who is not in my town. We'll sometimes watch Star Trek together online using Rabbit, which is a way we can like simultaneously watch something on uh, Netflix or something like that. From oh. Yeah, it's pretty cool. It's R-A-B-B dot I-T. But, Sarah, it sounds like a <laughs> mystery science theater approach to the podcast. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> With that, because we would do that, I actually made this uh, episode and series random generator website. So we go on there and just click, pick a series, and it would say like Enterprise, and then go to the Enterprise one and say pick an episode, and that's the way we would pick it. So honestly, like I don't, I don't feel like I have a very strong preference. I mean, I just, when I'm watching a Star Trek, so like earlier this week, I just randomly said I'm going to watch something. I I pulled up Deep Space Nine. The previous week, I pulled up something on Next Generation. For that, it was something on Discovery. I mean, I really honestly like them all. If I had to pick one, I mean, I feel like what I tell people is a good starter Trek is Voyager. Huh. And what I like about Voyager is that it's 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 not ancient like the original series. And so you, you can get into the effects are reasonable, things like that. There's a pretty clear goal going on. So there's sort of a long-term arc of, you know, we know they're trying to get home. I love the captain. Janeway is mm-hmm. fantastic. I, you know, if I was to work with anybody, I, sh- I would want to work with her. She also, as you may recall, used to be a science officer. So mm-hmm. she was extra interested in the science. And, you know, Harry Kim, the science officer on the show, is also very good. I've gotten to be friends with that actor, by the oh, way, Garrett Wong. That's Walton. crazy. He's, he's, great. <laughs> <laughs> he's a really great guy. Yeah, for the science, it's hard because, I mean, they all are hit or miss. I mean, honestly, Deep Space Nine probably has the least science. Hmm. So they probably get the fewest things wrong, oh. but there just isn't that much science. It's much more political, war-based, yeah. things like that. There's not so much science going on as, as in all the others. Enterprise had the most genetics and things like that, but they also had, you know, a decent number of errors in it, too. <laughs> Yeah, that, that was not their best. No, Voyager, I, mean, I might say overall Voyager might be one of the best for science, but 
they had probably like the worst episode of, in that regard too. There was an episode called Threshold where Tom Paris goes at warp 10 and then when he stops, he then starts, he starts mutating, quote unquote, and then he turns into an oh, amphibian yeah. and yeah, he grabs right. Janeway, makes her go warp 10 and she turns into an amphibian. They have amphibian babies and oh my gosh, <laughs> <laughs> it was horrible. <laughs> one of the times I wish we could upload the video because the yeah, reactions there, here are amazing. <laughs> there's, a, there's a funny story about that one though. If you go online, you can do this right now if you want on your computer, just Google fake Voyager paper. It'll be yeah, just doing it right now. I'm yeah. told you can hear me typing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes, yeah. there it is. Yeah. <laughs> and it so was just to fill you in, so, so a biologist who will remain nameless basically wrote the entire script of that episode using science speak and sent it to some of these predatory journals. The authors are Thomas Paris, Harry Kim. Nice. <laughs> like, affiliation Starfleet Command. <laughs> it basically goes through all the different steps of what happened in the episode step by step in the results section. <laughs> There, That's like awesome. someday, my post tenure, if tenure ever happens, dream is to write a fictional physiology book. Oh, it's nice! Like, you know the metabolic rates of witches and wizards to fuel their magic, and yeah. like how do trolls turn into stone when they're exposed to sunlight? All those kind of fun <laughs> things, and actually like break down the mechanisms for that. If you want the actual paper for that, the paper, the journal pulled it off after it got like a lot of publicity. <laughs> <laughs> But I have it. I have it saved on my phone. I can email it to you guys if you want to see it. Show notes. <laughs> That'd be awesome. And, and it sounds like if you're teaching a class on the Star Trek, on Star Trek, uh, Carrie, you you could just start by teaching that class and then write that book. That would be right? a real yeah. winner. Yeah. Uh, I need I need to just teach a general physiology class to do it. I I teach exercise phys, so I'm a bit more narrow <laughs> in what I can do. But yeah, it would be so much fun to write. Well, this has been awesome. Unfortunately, we're out of time. There are people waiting for Dr. Noah right outside my door, uh, looking in the window. So, uh, sign us out, Kara. So, this has been the Sausage of Science. Thank you all so much for listening. Chris, who is now typing an email, you can find him at Chris underscore L-Y on Twitter. And I'm Kara Akabak. You can find me at Kara Akabak on Twitter. Muhammad, thank you so much for being a part of this. Is there any way people pleasure. can get a hold of you through social media that you're on okay? Twitter, yes. My Twitter handle is at M like Michael, A-F like Frank, Noor, and like November O-O-R, at Muff Noor. Awesome. Thank you so much again. I actually just ordered your book on Amazon. That's oh, going to be you. my winter break reading. So Awesome. <laughs> thank you, and thank you all so much for listening. <laughs>